Anyway, hey, as somebody who is a graduate of uh, Reengage back in uh, 2014, um, man, thank you guys for coming. And my encouragement would be to you, whether you know you, you're here uh, and you're you're making it, you're making your way through the curriculum right now in a closed group, or if you're here for the first time uh, and you're kind of like, uh, who are you people? Like, what's going on in here? Uh, I would just strongly encourage you, like, just just keep coming, uh, keep coming, and. And uh, prayerfully submit to what the Lord is doing um, here, and just know that there's hope, right? Uh, my wife and I still look back on our time going through Reengage with a lot of fondness, and uh, we definitely benefited greatly from from uh, this curriculum. So uh, let me pray for just our time, and we'll we'll jump in. Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity. Thank you for my friends in this room. I pray specifically for um, all of the people who just in their hearts right now feel uncertain and feel lost and feel insecure and feel like um, marriage is a lost cause and feel like uh, nobody sees them or hears them or loves them. I pray that by your Spirit that tonight, you would begin to reveal to them who you are, the character of who you are, and the fact that at the end of it all, you are love, that you do see them, you do love them, you have given them agency and power. And I pray that the lies of the enemy would be dismantled. Only you can do this, and so we trust in you and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So you guys have probably heard the adage from A.W. Tozier that the most important thing about you is what, is what you think about when you think about God. What comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Well, my buddy uh, C.S. Lewis, who was not really my buddy because he died in 1963 before I... Did y'all know Lewis died on the same day Kennedy was assassinated? Did y'all know this? Fun fact. Um, I think, I think the, uh, the greater man uh, was lesser covered in that whole uh, situation. But, um, but Lewis died in 63, but he's definitely been a mentor of mine as I've read a lot of his. And if you hear me talk really anywhere, I'm probably going to talk about C.S. Lewis. Um, it's like Jesus and then C.S. Lewis. <clears throat> anyway, but... Uh, Lewis actually took issue with Tozier's uh, statement, even though Tozier is after Lewis. But, uh, but he said, hey, it's not, it's not what comes into our minds when we think about God that's the most important thing about us. It's what comes into God's mind when he thinks about us. What he says about us is infinitely more important than what we think or say about him. I think that's, that's good. The last thing I would say to add to that, and I'm, I'm definitely not putting myself into the same category as Lewis and Tozier, right? But I would propose that uh, even just as, maybe if not more important than those things, is how do you feel when you, when you experience God is, is probably the most important thing about you. We are, we are storied creatures. We live in stories. We, we cultivate narratives in our own lives. 
And we don't just do this individually, we do it collectively. So you have your own narrative that you cultivate in your life, but then your narr- guess what your narrative is doing? Your narrative is bumping up against other people's narratives. And their narratives that they live in are affecting how yours develops. So, for example, um, somebody might say something like, um, hey, I, I really love, I'm thinking about this from Holmes, <laughs> yeah. uh, I really love sushi, right? And they might come up and be like, man, I really love sushi. But then they might go into an environment like in probably like uh, maybe a rural Texas where barbecue is king. And somebody might come into rural Texas and go, I love sushi, right? Now all of a sudden, the other narratives around their narrative are going to press in on that narrative. And they're going to say, you're outside of your mind. No, let's go eat some barbecue, right? And now your narrative is going to be affected by the narratives around you. Are you tracking with me? Like this is called, ultimately it's called a culture script that we live in our our individual narratives, but then we also collectively have narratives that we live in. Now, how are these narratives formed? Well, there's a long answer to that I'm not going going to go into right now, but I do want to talk about um, the fact that when all of us are born, we as children, our brains, our, our physiological processes that are going on in the nervous system and in our brains, that we are beginning to make a mental map of the world that we live in. Now, the way we do that as infants is we look at an object and we're like, ooh, it's a lectern. Or we don't even know what to call it. We're like, ooh, this thing is awesome, right? Which is why if you have kids, then uh, good luck trying to get the kid not to interact with everything they see, right? And not only do they interact with everything they see, what do they do with when they pick something up? Do what? They put it in their mouth, right? Why is that? Because your mouth area, the region of your mouth, is one of the most sensory parts of your body. The child is putting that in its mouth because it can taste it. It can feel it with its, with its tongue. The, your your uh, smell region is there. The, the child is taking in the experience of the object. Are you tracking with me so far? This seems like, this is like super obvious, right? Um, if you have kids. And in fact, I'm like, dude, you know, quit eating the dirt. Take the, put, you know, spit the rock out. What, what are you doing? You know, why are you eating this? And, and so uh, we, we do this with kids, but what the kid is doing is, there, is taking that experience. I'm not just talking, like he has no cognitive ability really yet. In fact, the left side of your brain doesn't even turn on for like two years. Did y'all know that? It's crazy. So you have all these experiences that you just experience that are forming this mental map of the world that you live in before you ever call this a lectern, you already have an, exper- an emotional experience with this object before you ever know what to call it. Right. And um, what's crazy is we do that with every single object in our lives. Now, the two most significant objects in our lives when we're born, one of them is most of the time slightly smaller than the other one, Right? And when you cry, that one typically is a little bit more responsive than the other one, right? And uh, if you cry loud enough and long enough, then all of a sudden, like, you're like, wah, wah, and a boob appears. And you're like, 
whoa! Well, from the child's perspective, the child thinks, I just cried and this thing appeared that is now feeding me and I love it. I just created that. That's what the child thinks. It's very much a world where everything in the world is me. It's where all of my experiences are an extension of me. Right? And what it takes, in fact, I'm looking at this uh, little one back here uh, who has it in his mouth. And I know that because I have three kids and one on the way, right? Um, what you have to do is you have to take an object that resembles the real thing that the child thinks that it has created because all it has to go is, Wah! and all of a sudden the thing appears. That's, that's agency. That's power, right? The, the larger object is giving herself uh, and her, definitely her, uh, her desires, especially for sleep, right? She's giving that up to meet the need of this crying object, right? And the crying object is like, okay, sweet, this is awesome. Now, what you need to do to help that child move out of a world of everything is me into the world of, oh, dang, I'm in a world that's full of not me. In order to do that, you have to give them an object that um, resembles the real thing, but is not the real thing. It's called a transitional object. He's got one in his mouth back there. It's called a pacifier. Now, the child cries, and you put an object that, that is not the real thing into the child's mouth, and now the child um, can, can cry. It'll soothe the child, but then the child is still hungry. And it's like, wait a minute. And you can see this. Like, watch, watch your kids do this. They'll take the pacifier. They'll, they'll love it like Jules right now. She's three. She still has a daggum pacifier. You know, I'm like, Jules, when are you going to give this up? You know, let's talk about this. I don't really say that. but um, We actually play pacifier games, but um, she'll take this thing. If she's, she'll get mad at it and throw it, right? She'll, she'll desire it to where it's like, holy, holy crap, you've got an obsession with this thing, you know? And she'll, oh, I got my pacifier. Okay, hey. Right? She's, she is, uh, that, tr that transitional object to the pacifier is allowing her psychologically to move into the real world over time. And um, what happens when she moves into the real world over time is she begins to realize that the, uh, that the real thing is not me. And when the child realizes that the real thing is not me, the child begins to form a pattern of relating to that object. And uh, and then, after a while, the child, as the child grows, the child will begin to put a verbal symbol on that object. And that verbal symbol is, Mommy. And that object becomes Mommy to the child. Now, in another language, it's something else, right? Um, but in English, it's Mommy. Then the child grows, it's like, wait, there's typically this larger one that's a little more powerful, and I relate to that one differently, and I'm going to end up attaching uh, a verbal symbol called Daddy to that one, to that object. And what the child is doing through its mental overlay, the mental map of relating to all of the objects in its world, um, is primarily, it relates to all of the objects, but primarily through the two, the father and the mother, the child is going, okay, I am learning how to relate to 
uh, all of the other objects in my world through these two primary objects. Right? It's called attachment. The child is attaching to its primary objects. Now, there's four ways that we typically attach. One, the first one is called secure attachment. This is when the child cries, and the, the slightly smaller object who can feed the child typically responds. And in a secure environment, the mother's response to the child's call for help or cry for hunger or whatever, the mother will respond well enough for the child to relate to the mother in a secure way, where the child knows you're, you see me, you respond to me, I, I'm able to influence you. Those core questions are answered in a good enough way. That's called a secure environment. All right. Now, the other three are fit into a category broadly that's called an insecure environment. And in an insecure environment, generally speaking, when the child is giving a cry or is giving a signal that it needs help, then the primary attachment figures don't respond well enough. And in not responding well enough, the child begins to relate to those insecure attachments in three different ways. The first one is the child becomes anxious. Okay? You'll see this when, when uh, typically in environments where, where the primary attachment figure is uh, overly anxious or overreacts, then the child will react to that attachment figure in a way where they're like, it, it makes them anxious. And, and while they are staying close to uh, their primary attachment figure, that is not a pleasant experience for the child. Okay? And the second way is the child will, again, experience an insecure attachment with their primary object, and they'll go, they'll go uh, instead of reacting in an anxious way, the child will remove him or herself from their, their primary object and will, and will create distance, and that's called insecure avoidance. They will avoid the, the object, because the object is not safe for them. And now they'll stay. What's fascinating is they'll, they'll distance themselves from the object, but they'll stay close enough that a secure attachment is still possible. Because we have these overwhelming physiological desires to attach. We're created to attach. We're just created to attach securely. Now, the third category in insecure attachment is called insecure disorganized. And this one is really tragic. I mean, uh, all of them are bad, but this one's, uh, this one's yeah, really tragic. <clears throat> and that's when the attachment object or the attachment figure who is supposed to be the primary responder to the child's needs, to the child's desires, um, to the child's signals, that person is actually dangerous to the child. So the child is simultaneously experiencing, I have to attach to you, and at the same time is afraid to attach. And there is a, there's literally a neurological fracture that happens in the brain where uh, the child is going, I need you to see me, I need you to love me, I need you, but, but, but you're harmful to me. And uh, that there's examples of this where a child will approach its mother, but the child approaches its mother uh, walking backwards with its back turned to its mother. Right? 
you see things like this in a disorganized child. The, their entire world becomes incoherent because they failed to attach securely to anyone. Not only that, but uh, the person they want to attach to is not only unavailable, but is actually dangerous. Right? Now, why do I talk about all this stuff? You're like, dude, did I come to a daggum psych class on attachment? You know? And the answer is, well, yeah. <laughs> and also, uh, guess what happens? In the midst of those environments that all of us have been in, there's probably, I don't know, 100-something people in here. 100-something different stories of how you have attached to your primary attachment figures. I have the same story. Or I have my own story. And all of us in our environments, um, when, when we're two, three, typically about two or three years old, we begin to hear about another object. And that other object, uh, we see people act strangely around this object. And they do ritual around it. And we have holidays around it. And people are talking about this object. And we, we go to a building where, where people talk about this object. We sing to this object. People are talking to this object. And nobody can see it. That object is God. We assign the verbal symbol, God, to that unique internal construct that we have um, that is formed in that attachment environment with our other attachment figures. Now, you might be like, well, daggum, is, does that mean God is like fake? Did I make him up? You know? And the answer is yes and no. God is both created by you in your mind as an internal construct. That's your, that's your little G God that's unique to you. There are, as many, there are as many shades to that character as there are people, right? And also, there is an objective reality who is God. Now, an easy way to do this is, I'm looking at Ryan. I can go down there and give Ryan a hug, and we can laugh it up, and woo! You know, Ryan, Ryan Nixon. Good friend of mine, long time. Now, that's an that, Ryan is objectively real. Like, if I go over there and high-five him, I'm going to sensorily feel that we can influence one another, all this stuff. Now, but my, but my internal picture of Ryan and how I relate to him is something that I have created um, in, out of a lens of experiences that have been influenced by a ton of other stuff. You see what I'm saying? And so my picture of Ryan is not Ryan. You guys tracking with me? Pretty simple, okay? Well, what's crazy is, like he said, my picture of Ryan can change over time. It's not, it's not, it's not static. It's not in a vacuum. It's being influenced. Um, and the crazy thing is, guys, is the ways that we relate to our attachment figures and our patterns of relating, that stuff spills over in, in our internal psychological construct that we call God. It spills over so that we begin to assign characteristics and traits to the objectively real God that are not true. They might be true of our dad, or our mom, or our brothers, or sisters, or a coach, but it's not true of the objective reality who is God. Now, all of us relate to the objective reality through the lens of our attachment patterns. Now, why is that significant? Because we're storied creatures. 
We still live in stories. Like right now, there is this narrative playing out in your head about, oh, man, it's too cold in here. What the heck am I doing at re-engage? Or why did I marry this person? Like there are narratives that are going on in your mind right now. The problem is, is we think that those narratives are completely true. But they're definitely not. There are aspects of your narrative that are true. Most of, I would say, that your narrative has been influenced by things um, both inside and outside of your control that have pushed in on your narrative to create an internal uh, uh, self-narrative or neurotic self-talk that doesn't have anything to do with actual reality. And so when it comes to God, right, then something will happen and we think, hmm, God must have done this. And I don't trust God because if God really loved me, then X, Y, and Z would have happened, right? And then you start to dig into that narrative because while all of us have narratives, very few of us actually examine whether our narrative is true. We just automatically believe that it is. You should not do that. In your marriage, the way that you think your marriage is going, you should not believe that your perspective in that is, is totally true. It's not. Like that's, that's not like, that's not like me saying, hey, you know, you really ought to do this. That's like psychologically, neurologically true. Like biologically true. Right? Because there's experiences that we have and then there's how we interpret those experiences. And if we, if we overlay all of our insecure attachments onto the objective reality who is God and begin to believe things about him that's really just leakage from our insecure attachment patterns, then we believe that God is unapproachable, that he doesn't see us, that he doesn't love us, that he doesn't care about us, that he doesn't look at us and delight in us. And, and look, anywhere in your narrative that would say anything bad about God, the narrative is wrong. Like the scriptures are super clear. God is love. He engages. The Son of Man did not come to, into the world to judge the world but that through him the world might be saved. What verse does that follow? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He is on a rescue mission to free us from our false narratives that we live in so that we can begin to experientially see that God is actually love. We don't just think it up here. It becomes our ongoing experience as we're transformed into the likeness of Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. So that 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, which says, Beloved, like, look at how great this is, that we would be called children of God. That word there, some of y'all may have heard me say this before, that word there is, is uh, potapos. It's, from, uh, it's where we get topography from, right? Uh, potapos is, uh, uh, in, in ancient Greek, uh, prior to Koine Greek, it, it, was a, it was a question. It literally meant, what, where is that from? Or what country is that from? That's where the topography comes. Like, what, that place. 
Where is that? What kind of place is that? When you apply that to 1 John 3, it literally says, what country is the love of God from? That we should be called children of God. But that is what we are. He, he goes on to say, um, hey, what, what we will be, we, we don't even know yet what we will be. But when we see him, we will be like him. Why? Because we will see him as he is. Isn't that crazy? All of our false narratives will fall off. All of the, all of the stickiness that keeps us uh, believing false things about God, that, that he doesn't love us, that he doesn't delight in us, that I'm not seen by him, that, that I'm not, that I'm not uh, uh, valued by him, that, that he doesn't care about me. All of those lies, and they are lies from the pit of hell that will keep you from the love of God, which is the fuel that you were created to, love, to, to operate on. It will keep you from the love of God. And when the actual objective reality appears and we see him as he is, all of those false narratives will be obliterated. Roger that. All of the ways that the chaos creature, the enemy, the adversary, the accuser, all of the ways that he convinces us that God is not love will be totally destroyed. And you will see God as he is. And God is love. And he loves you. He loves you right where you are. He's not asking you to clean yourself up or make yourself pretty or anything like that. He's like, man, I formed you out of the dirt. And I breathed life into you and I love you. And I see you. And I want to liberate you from the lies that you've believed about me. And what I want to help you see tonight is that in a lot of different ways, all of us are deeply formed in environments that will push us into lies about God. He's not responsible for those. He didn't want those to happen. They did happen, and that's why he came to show us that God demonstrates an ongoing reality, an ongoing demonstration that he loves us, present tense, loves us, in that while you were still sinning, Christ died for you. And so, guys, there is hope for you tonight to begin to move out of false narratives and into the love of God. It's the fuel you were designed to run on. He is the ultimate attachment figure. And if anybody ever tells you anything bad about God, don't believe it, including yourself. He loves you. He loves you. He doesn't just love you. He delights in you. He sings over you. With joy. Have you seen my child? He saw what he created. And he said, that is tov, tov. That is very good. 
don't let anybody ever tell you anything bad about God. Lord, make that true in our lives. Dadgum, we need it. <laughs> we're lost and jacked up, and when we, we're in a ditch, we get out and we jump right back in. And we need you. Help us to see you as you are. To receive your love that is constantly, constantly being poured out over us. Help us to live into the love of God. In the name of Jesus the Messiah, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.